at the centenary of the Great War, historians and curators face a considerable challenge of bringing fresh perspectives to a conflict that's already fam very familiar to audiences, not only through their own family history and memorabilia, but also a shared culture of remembrance, the arts and the media. The past few decades in particular have seen a marked increase in published histories of the Great War, especially in the form of soldiers' letters and diaries, and, and a, an increasing number of these, of course, have self-published by families, which is actually one of the very exciting things, I think, um, to be happening. But while men's personal perspectives of um, the conflict have come to take centre stage, there are still few insights on wartime life in New Zealand or, importantly, on the connections between home fronts and battlefronts, um, between home and overseas theatres. So in working on this project, um, what we were trying to do was to illuminate New Zealand society as a whole and the way in which it was enmeshed in the Great War. The project emphasises material culture in everyday life and uses objects as primary sources in order to illuminate the period and to explore who New Zealanders at war were, as well as what they treasured and why. It investigates the importance of objects in maintaining individual, family and sometimes community identities in a conflict that was global and globalising, as well as one that was impersonal and industrialised. Objects make clearer the links between the home front and the fighting. In contrast to many countries in Europe, New Zealand of course was a society almost as remote from the many different battlefields as it was possible to be. Yet geographical distance did not mean emotional distance. And although our boys were away fighting, they were far from forgotten. And similarly, we see through a lot of the evidence that we've accumulated that soldiers too were thinking of those at home. Civilians have their rightful place in a history of war. And in writing our book, we've joined what we see as an international effort to record the experience of whole societies during the conflict rather than simply the men and the few women in uniform. Capturing civilian voices, of course, is not an easy task. The records, letters, diaries, even photographs of non-combatants in this period are relatively rare, especially when compared with the enormously rich archive of soldiers' personal writings and official army records. Partly, this was because most letters and contents of parcels to soldiers were lost or destroyed or consumed. But also institutions in um, the interwar and then in the post-Second World War period tended to focus on combat experience when collecting personal papers and objects. Today, however, curators and archivists apply a much broader criteria in defining war-related objects. Our research has benefited significantly from the recent growth of social history in museums and the reassessment of collections from this perspective. Uniforms, for example, including insignia and regalia, 
Some of the most common Great War objects in public collections are the carriers of many layers of meaning well beyond the military need to recognise authority and construct hierarchy. And they speak to a link between home and theatres of war. And we discovered some of the links after turning William Phillips' tunic inside out. We were looking for the stamp of the maker, the um, Abraham Levy's factory here in Wellington. And what we found was bloodstains in his pockets, sand, and a very inexpertly stitched on chevron, which spoke to us of his lack of skill rather than his ability. A particular pleasure in this project has been exploring the collections held in regional libraries, archives and museums. Their diversity reinforces the point that families, towns and regions were key communities through which New Zealanders experienced the war and its consequences. Altogether, Holding On To Home features items from almost 30 public collections, plus a few private ones. But we did not want to present them in such a way that resulted in a treasures book. There's an increasing number of, um, of these books, the such and such event in X objects publications. And while they bring attention to objects, they do so in very particular ways. So Gary Sheffield's recent publication, The First World War in 100 Objects, of the 100 in the book, only five or six have a personal connection. The rest are um, talked about in very generic ways. So in order to avoid this, we attempted to weave together objects and stories into a, into a much more thematic historical account of the Great War. So for our talk today, we thought we would focus on four of the objects um, and talk a little bit about the themes um, that we attach to those. And so we hope to demonstrate that objects, when integrated with documentary and pictorial sources, can and do change the scale and scope, the nature of the history of New Zealand's Great War. I'm going to start with the wristwatches. If the Great War was the first modern conflict, it was not because of industrial weaponry, but because of the wristwatch. Uniform understandings of time and the wireless technology to communicate timetabled instructions were essential to the enormous offensives of the war. Yet true standardisation of time, with Greenwich as the reference point, had been achieved only in 1912 at the International Conference on Time in Paris. Many men would not have owned a watch of any sort. Farmers and labourers worked according to daylight, Factory workers' lives were regulated by the factory whistle heard all over a suburb. Town centres and offices had clocks. Jewellers were quick to capitalise, however, on the new market created by war. Military men needed to know the time in all conditions. Styles varied with watch glass covers providing some measure of protection, echoing the hunter or closed cases for pocket watches and newly discovered radioactive radium was used to make dials luminous. Wristwatches were immensely popular farewell gifts for soldiers, and they were appreciated. Ira Robinson from Banks Peninsula wrote to his sister Lizzie from camp, I would like to thank you for the watch you gave me. It's a beauty, 
It keeps splendid time and is now part of my arm as it is always there night and day. Vast numbers of soldier portraits show men wearing watches, but it's difficult to know how they stood up to the rigours of wartime conditions. Teacher Reg Sims had been given a wristlet watch by his parents when he went into camp in August 1917, but by Christmas on the troop ship he noticed in his diary that it was being affected by the sea air and rusting. Lists of personal effects returned to families do include watches, but this may also have been an indication that men had stopped wearing them and had stashed them in their kit bags. One man who may have been wearing his watch when killed in battle was 19-year-old Tom Ernest, whose brother David advertised in a soldier newspaper for the finder of the watch to contact their father. Tom died of wounds received at Messines in June 1917 at a casualty clearing station, and his watch had been placed in a wooden matchbox and sent home from London, but no note was enclosed. It was the only personal possession returned to the family. You'll note the wristwatch, an important feature. I enjoyed enormously the challenge of writing about wristwatches. <clears throat> they seem a less personal object than something like um, a soldier portrait, one of those ubiquitous yet highly individual objects, because so many of the watches that we have in collections have no uh, provenance. There are some um, with engraving, um, there are some that of course come with some family history, but we don't have that immediate human recognition that we do with soldier portraits. But then when we read letters like that from Ira Robinson to Lizzie, the watch of course was worn next to the skin. It, it became a very intimate object within men's lives and within the lives of their families. They fall slightly into the category too of ordinary items that were important to soldiers. And I counted in this things like greatcoats, blankets, waterproof sheets, the absence of which could make life utterly miserable. And when I went back through soldiers' diaries looking for stuff, looking for things, what I found was an overwhelming preoccupation with things like blankets. Beds were a major preoccupation in men's letters and diaries, and one of the great joys of being evacuated, even for, um, under very difficult circumstances, was the possibility of clean sheets. So this is Norman Pryor, um, just before the evacuation of Gallipoli, and you can see he's just wearing everything that he can in order to get it off the peninsula one of the waterproof sheets that remains um, in a public collection. Many men complained in the first few days of evacuation um, that they couldn't sleep because the beds were too soft. They'd become accustomed to much harder surfaces. But nonetheless, um, clean sheets and pillowcases were always commented on when they were able to be um, experienced. And in a photograph like this, we can see too that clean sheets and pillowcases and all that went with hospitalisation particularly signalled the importance of voluntary labour during the war. Um, I'm going to read 
the second breakout, which is about um, the one piece of patriotic knitting that we managed to find. There's a lot, it appears a lot in records, newspaper reports, um, parcels, all sorts of things, but actually finding a bit of it. So this for me is a really good example of the way that a lot of voluntary labour produced things that were eventually destined for destruction. That linen here would have then been used over and over again. As it wore out, it would have been torn for bandages, um, for swab cloths, and then gradually it just disintegrates. But this is the one piece that we managed to find. So we started, um, we started this story with uh, the lines from a song which ends, we cannot all shoulder a rifle, but there is the spinning wheel. And these lines come from one of several wartime songs dedicated to the prodigious voluntary efforts of civilians. Knitting, and hand-knitted socks in particular, has become the strongest image of women's war work in allied countries. Ironically, the availability of factory-made knits at the turn of the century meant that at the outbreak of the Great War, most women did not actually know how to knit. However, specially published knitting recipe books guided the needles of keen and patriotic knitters. And luckily, most knitting patterns required only basic knowledge. Even children could knit pyjama cords, which were only seven stitches wide, but a seemingly endless 1.5 metres long. This khaki scarf was given to Alan Lindley Murray from Tokarahi in North Otago, who was barely 20 years old when he was balloted in the winter of 1918. Its unknown knitter used the two most basic stitches of knit and purl to create a thick and lofty fabric that would have been warm and comfortable. Khaki was one of the regulation colours for Red Cross knitting, and during the war, yarn manufacturers ensured the production of khaki khaki mix and clerical grey for New Zealand's army of knitters. Hundreds of thousands of parcels of knitted and sewn goods went out to soldiers during the war. The Postal Service in New Zealand reported over 250,000 parcels dispatched to the NZEF in 1916 alone. The printed label here declaring this scarf to be a gift of the Otago patriotic groups, signalled both the professionalism of the volunteer effort and the desire of provincial groups to be recognised for caring for their boys. Such efficiency, however, could lead to friction. The Otago and Southland Women's Patriotic Association came under some criticism for favouring Otago and Southland soldiers. The Auckland Provincial Patriotic League, in particular, expressed its disappointment that the Otago Association was departing from the principle of general distribution to which we all strongly adhere. The Otago group was unapologetic, arguing they are veritable messages from home, these parcels, and that its members wanted soldiers to feel, no matter where they are, the love of their womenfolk at home. While Alan may have worn the scarf at camp in July of 1918, the signing of the armistice in November spared him from the bitter cold of the Western Front, but he and he does not appear to have left New Zealand. 
but the scarf no doubt kept him warm during bracing Otago winters. It was possibly one of the most difficult effort, um, areas for us to look for material culture because the vast bulk of what was produced as part of the voluntary war effort was disposable. Either um, it was designed that way or simply through harsh treatment. And I think that this is part of what makes voluntary work an area that's reasonably easy to dismiss. There's, there's very few histories now that would not acknowledge the voluntary labour, but I'm really not sure that we understand the extent of it. There's also the implicit assumption that knitting and sewing and voluntary work equated with patriotism and support for the war. But that link is not always there in the recollections of community efforts, nor of the reception of parcels. We found instead that um, sociability was a very important driver for this kind of work. Um, and that spending time together in a time of stress was often um, an encouragement for groups that were either organised around existing voluntary organisations such as the Hawke's Bay Girls Friendly Society um, or workplace organisations. So these messages and signatures have been stitched by um, the Ballantine staff of Timaru and we went through and matched up some of the individuals to see if we could find relatives serving and there is, as you'd expect, a reasonably high proportion but not everybody. A focus on families and communities can enable us too to uncouple women's voluntary support, women's voluntary labour from patriotic support of the war, whatever that meant at the time. The emotional economy of this kind of work can't be underestimated. People like to feel useful, they liked to feel that they were doing something for their people. And it can't be separated from the material economy of war. Everything about this massive material effort was important. And the involvement of a very wide range of people from the community also signals its role in unifying people beyond their communities into a nation, just as much as the glowing press reports of soldiers' performance that came back. I'll hand over to Kirsty now to continue talking about the inclusion of young people in wartime life. So turning away now from voluntary labour, albeit children's voluntary labour, to child's play. And I'm going to start um, with a story about this 76 centimetre tall doll who was donated by Francis de Lille, nay Nicholson, to Te Papa's predecessor, the National Museum, in 1986. On Christmas morning 1919, two-year-old Francis Nicholson received this long-limbed doll from her Auckland grandfather, Charles Nicholson. Frances named the doll Christie in honour of the day, and she became a much-loved companion. Christie owed her existence to the war, even though it had been over for more than a year. She was a mechanical walking doll with a hand-painted face and was probably assembled or perhaps mended 
in a workshop providing rehabilitation for disabled soldiers. Her torso and wooden legs were made locally. The head and arms may have originated in America, where similar so-called dolly walkers were being made by the Wood Toy and Manhattan Doll companies. Up until the Great War, Germany had dominated the toy industry and monopolised the production of high-quality dolls. This of course ended with the outbreak of hostilities with Great Britain consciously setting out to capture the German toy industry during the war. And the Lord Roberts Memorial Workshops in London, established for the re-employment of maimed servicemen, were the flagships of this enterprise. America and Japan also became important suppliers of more fragile toys, while the more substantial ones began to be sourced from around the British Empire, including a Christchurch factory that made hobby horses, wooden wagons, perambulators, wheelbarrows, engines, steamrollers and ships, all neatly manufactured and well finished. Despite these new manufacturing initiatives, Disruptions to international shipping led to a shortage of toys in New Zealand. One Wellington businessman, undeterred, suggested that for Christmas parents buy a pair of sandals or some such thing in lieu of the toys so dear to the juvenile heart. These wartime shortages would have made the gift of a sophisticated doll all the more precious although Frances may not have realised Christie's production also made her special. Newspapers had reported at the end of 1919 that a returned soldier in Australia had invented a walking doll that is not full of intricate mechanisms and needs no key to wind her up, surely an accurate description of Christie. The veteran told the reporter that the dolls purchased in Sydney, strange enough, were mostly to go to Java and New Zealand. Soon after this, another newspaper reported the appearance of a similar doll in Auckland, perhaps the one Francis had received for Christmas. Because in January 1920, the colonist reported that a little girl was seen proudly leading a large walking doll in Queen Street to the delight of the passers-by. But the gathering crowd, the report continued, did not conduce to the orderly procession of traffic and a policeman found it necessary to request the little girl to remove her baby. So the potential of war, the potential impact of war on children's lives had in some respects been anticipated in the le years leading up to it with the quickening interest in young people as little Britons and future citizens. And this interest was apparent in initiatives such as cadet training for boys and phys physical education in the school curriculum, as well as the promotion of scouting as an out-of-school hours activity. So in 1914, um, Lower Hutt lad Teddy Reynolds was prepared to do his imperial duty and asked if he could accompany his father to war. He wrote to General Godley on the 14th of August, I am eight years old. I am in the first standard. I want to come to the war. 
My father is going to the war and I would like to go and fight for our country. Inevitably, war disrupted the fabric and structures of families. And with the enlistment of teachers, it also had an ongoing impact on schooling, another of New Zealand's central social institutions. The hostilities infiltrated the content of school texts and subjects such as geography, so that in 1915, Wellington Girls College boasted that most of the girls can draw the Dardanelles with their eyes closed. Imagery used in classrooms reinforced military endeavour and leadership, such as the case of John Caskey's attendance certificate. The war overseas also drew children into local circles of voluntary labour, which we saw in, in the, the knitting photo just a few moments ago. And like adults, they knitted, but they also collected grass seed and bottles to raise funds for soldiers' comforts. And in their free time, they participated in public performances of patriotism, dressed up as soldiers, sailors and nurses like Ernest Binns and Tui Haverfield of Auckland, or they donned whimsical fancy dress to wear at patriotic carnivals and in street parades, uh, like this one on Daffodil Day um, in Nelson, held in August 1915. Children and adolescents were conscious of and caught up in the conflict via print media. Some wrote to newspapers to express their views and feelings about the war. 14-year-old Nancy Fannin's handmade news, news sheet hints at what war news meant to her. It was made to cheer up a sick aunt. Nancy's publication features this humorous short war story with a material culture theme, by the way. Textual and pictorial evidence shows us how the war made its presence felt in children's lives. But to Papa's Christy Dole provides additional perspectives on non-adult non experiences. For example, she reveals how New Zealand children and their play were implicated in the political economy of war. Christy's articulated limbs meant that she could walk, but without German toy-making expertise and parts, she could not, could not open or close her eyes. Her unblinking gaze was due to ongoing import restrictions placed on high-quality German-made dolls, which of course were partly famous for their hyper-real eyes. Christie's story is also part of a narrative about the material absence that children experienced during war and afterwards. Dolls and toys, of course, were in short supply during the war years. Um, but locally made ducks and sports medals were also thin on the ground and sorely missed. The money usually spent on these awards went towards patriotic causes, or in the case of Waitaki Boys High School, um, this money went towards its war memorial. You can see that in this certificate here. Well, disappointment lingered in the memories of some children who did not receive these tokens that acknowledged their achievements. Thelma Hayward, aged 10 in 1914, felt cheated by the war. In an oral history, she recalled that because of it, there wasn't the money about for school committees to buy things, so I missed my ducks medal. I had to go without one. Christie's existence also materialises an unexpected intersection between children's play and men's work, specifically the work of disabled servicemen, 
And this was despite senior army officials' resistance to these men taking up doll making as part of their vocational rehabilitation. And Christie's production, which involved the labour of a disabled soldier at some stage, is therefore touching and quite pathetic. Official attitudes and policies did not stop these sorts of ironic, war-related coincidences seeping into everyday life. And finally, Christie poses questions about remembering and forgetting. And these are raised by the provenance notes recorded when the, ball, the doll was acquired. Christie was said to have been given to Francis, the donor, by her father. But her father, Oliver Edward Charles Nicholson, had died in September 1918, before Francis had even turned one. So why did Francis tell the museum that it was her father who gave her Christie? When research for our books strongly suggests that it was her paternal grandfather who was the source of the gift. Perhaps old age caused this mix-up. But it, is it feasible that the doll became vital material evidence in a story formulated by Frances as she grew older, devised as a tangible link to the father she never really knew? So this point leads me to our final case study, that of a soldier's personal effects and how his mother used them to hold on to her dead son's memory. Towards the end of the war, Kaikoura widow Mrs. Frances Rolfs received this simple drawstring canvas bag on the right containing a completely unremarkable collection of objects, a wallet, photos and cards. Frances kept this bag and its contents long after the conflict ended, along with a small change purse inlaid with power shell and mother of pearl. It's only um, about six by four and a half centimetres. From their outward appearance, the two items seem to be unrelated. One is plain and serviceable, made to a standard pattern, with its contents in the name of its previous owner typed onto its exterior while the tiny purse is de delicately decorated with a butterfly and floral motif. But it was a wartime death that linked the two objects together as a tangible legacy of one man's participation in the Great War. The canvas bag contained the personal effects of 22-year-old Herman, only son of Mrs Rolfs, who was killed by machine gun at a poem on the 24th of August 1918. The purse still holds a photograph of Herman taken before he left for the Western Front. A concise obituary of his abbreviated life also survives, such as the short summary of the life of the young man who will be remembered by all who knew him as a quiet, industrious and clean living young lad who gave himself to this country as soon as he was of age, reads the clipping now aged and yellow, kept by Herman's mourning mother. It is perhaps not surprising that Francis Rolfs received so little in the canvas bag. The objects returned when a soldier died could be generic and ordinary, as Kate has already pointed out. Nonetheless, families treasured these items that men had touched, worn and carried in their last days and hours. It is possible that all that could be recovered at first of Herman's kit 
were the seemingly impersonal items perfunctorily listed on the canvas bag for military accounting purposes. The trunk he left at base when he went to the front also may not have been immediately returned in the chaos of demobilisation at the end of the war. A handful of other personal possessions, Herman's cap and shoulder regimental badges, pay books and leave papers, as well as official medals and documents eventually made their way to his mother. A locally made memorial medal was also presented to the Rolfs family but it was the miniature portrait of her son that appears to have touched Frances the most and she carried it in her purse for the rest of her life. Herman's death, while singular and personally catastrophic for his mother, was one of 18,000 New Zealand fatalities of the Great War and this scale of death shattered the exclusive status of the bereaved that had existed in peacetime and provoked new and communal ways to mourn. For example, mourning stationery sent to the Beecham family after the death of only son Leslie Heron Beecham and the family-funded Carillion Bell in the National War Memorial provide material evidence of Edwardian mourning practices in flux ruptured by this concentration of death. In fact, without graves to visit, Public war memorials became the focus of communities that grieved en masse. And of course, details of these memorials are covered in Jock Phillips and Chris McLean's 1990 publication. And summing up contemporary attitudes towards the function and form of these memorials, they write that such monuments were meant to be ornamental, not utilitarian. They would communicate an idealistic and heroic view of the war and they would aspire to the established traditions of European high art. Well, in total, New Zealand communities erected more than 500 public memorials to those who died during the Great War, and more than 30% of these took the form of the, an obelisk. And this locally funded architecture of remembrance was supplemented by five official overseas battlefield memorials. Designed by Samuel Hurst Seeger, these monuments were unveiled on the Somme in October 1922, which we can see here, at Le Quinoir in July 1923, Messine and Gravenstaffel in August 1924, and finally on Chanukbeer in May 1925. War memorials visited once a year on Anzac Day today have become the default mechanism through which many New Zealanders comprehend and commemorate a century of conflict or international armed conflict. But these monuments cast a shadow over intimate and private object-centric forms of remembrance that individuals formulated in the initial wake of wartime, wartime death. And the material record um, indicates that those who mourned integrated um, remembrance into embodied everyday life, into activities that were often too ordinary to record or ritualise. And it could be as simple as carrying a small coin purse with the photo of a soldier's son who was buried on the Western Front. And I find it quite moving to think about Frances opening her coin purse at the post office perhaps to pay for a stamp or some other small item 
and catching a glimpse of Herman's portrait tucked into that little hidden pocket. And this compact functional object demonstrates how private touchstones of loss that connected the bereaved to loved ones were generic, they were domestic, and they were seemingly unheroic. And we can see this too with Dorothy Broad's transformation of remnants from her fiance Wyville's uniform. Um, here she's turned um, the pips, a shoulder pip and a button into a hat pin. Um, it could be mourning jewellery. Just another example of this domestication of remembrance. But there is a final sto parallel story to be told here. Herman's calico bag kept by his mother indicates to us that objects mattered to the army. The return of soldiers' personal effects was a serious business. For example, the effects of ha for half of the Gallipoli dead are listed in an index that was returned, uh, an index housed in Archives New Zealand. And that list includes uh, this identity disc that was returned to the parents of Morris Brown and it's now held in Te Papa, the tiny um, disc now decorated with power. And some of the items recorded in the index, engraved cigarette cases, pens, watches, were very likely to have been farewell gifts and soldiers keepsakes of home and family. And the names of the 207 men for whom no effects at all could be recovered are also listed in the index. Now the attention given to the return of men's possessions can be viewed in two ways. On the one hand, the return to families of identity discs and pay books. Uh, the return of these items, the efficient processes that demanded voluntary workers produce uniform calico bags and even the government contracts set up to deliver these bags. Um, the New Zealand Express Company was one of these firms. These could all be used as evidence of well-known facets, perhaps even cliches of the Great War. In many ways, these objects emphasise the depersonalising industrial forces of wholesale destruction and death. On the other hand, that the army devised such careful systems and went to great lengths to return any effects at all speaks to their universally accepted importance. And by the end of the war, with the enormous death tolls on the Western Front and the firm Allied policy to not repatriate bodies, this process had been become streamlined with systems of exhaustive record keeping that tracked men's possessions over the nearly 20,000 kilometre journey back to New Zealand. The Gallipoli Effects Register tells us that things mattered to those who fought and those who grieved. That the Register has not so far been seen as evidence by historians of that campaign tells us too that things have not mattered much to historians, or at least those researching the wartime experiences of New Zealanders. But in these centennial years and in our book, we suggest that a fresh perspective can be brought to the history of the war if objects are incorporated into historians' repertoire of sources. And as historian Bernard Herman has observed, 
Material culture can free historians to recast historical narratives, sometimes challenging historical orthodoxies. Our research suggests that such an approach can extend our understandings of the ways New Zealanders experienced wartime. Things were not only shaped by war, things also helped New Zealanders make sense of it. And we have also found that material culture can make more explicit the links between the home front and battlefront, which in a society as remote as this one from the battlefield have been largely ne neglected. So artifacts make the past tangible through calico, wood, paint, wool, paper, power, steel, leather, enamel. They add physical form to documentary evidence. And we hope that our approach to the history of wartime experiences encourages other historians to give status and voice to object. It is from the histories behind personal possessions and other objects that Kate and I have endeavoured to make New Zealand's collective experience of the Great War feel more intimate and more human and to bring it closer to home. So if people could just indicate uh, that they'd like to ask a question or make a comment to either of our speakers, we'll start now. I, I loved your book, um, and it's so much better than Gary Sheffield's book. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question's a little bit off-centre in some ways. I'm really quite interested in how you work together yeah. in a combined publication. Did you have a process, a, a methodology for, for doing that? Do you want to answer that? Oh, okay. Well, we shared everything, so um, we kind of split the writing between us. So we roughly split, split the chapters um, between us, kind of based on, well, what we knew, or did <laughs> and 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 similarly the the you know the object breakouts as well, and then um, kind of um, I relied heavily on Kate's kind of research expertise over the you know having taught. World War One mm. for twenty million years, yeah, <laughs> and um, I, I I knew the collections around New Zealand very well, and was lucky mm. enough to do quite a lot of object research, um, and so we brought those two kind of areas of expertise together, and um, and with some help of some peer some peer reviewers mm. as well, um, and also. To Papa Press's kind of very um, kind of strong ideas about um, look and feel, um, we kind of um, cobbled it together. But it was a very democratic <laughs> process. We had a couple of kind of uh, writing boot camps. Yes. You yeah. want to talk a little bit? About well, the thing for me, being someone who generally dealt with documents rather than someone who dealt with things was when we would go away for a weekend, Kirsty would bring these boxes of photocopies of photographs that she'd taken of things around the country. And, and once we had the general shape of a chapter worked out, we would then, it was best to go away to somewhere which had a big clear dining room, because you could then lay out all the photographs on the floor and begin to say, okay, well, all right, let's, okay, so theme one is X, that, 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 and that. Oh, that's, we thought that was a good object, but actually it's not, visually compelling in this group. 
so we won't deal with that. It says something to us because we've got so much background knowledge, but it won't say anything to a reader. So in lots of ways, we actually walked through the chapters with the objects laid out. And, and we, I mean, we've still got boxes of things that didn't go in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think too, the for I think the real secret is being able to step back and say, this is not about me and my writing, this is about the book. And so when you give up your first draft of the chapter to the, t- you know, the three people who are going to read it, you just have to step back and say, it is what it is yeah. and it'll come back and I can't take offence. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess for me, because I, I've you know, worked on a lot of history exhibitions and so we, yeah. we tend to actually workshop our text a lot. I'll brief a writer or write a draft and it's a very iterative process. Mm. Writing is very iterative and um, communal for me and so... It was me who had to say Oh, no, 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 no. Um, so, so for me, because of my museum experience, that was very helpful. We did, it was very interesting, our publisher really pushed us occasionally to write a general history of the war. Mm. And we really kind of pushed back and said, no, actually, some topics are going to fall out of this because we want to talk about the material culture and to allow that to lead us to the stories Mm. in some respects. So, yeah, we we really don't talk about conscientious objection. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we talk about absence of objects, but um, Mm. we, um, in the end, that story is, 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 is not in there. Yeah. Could you recommend um, any primary sources or any recent books um, to follow on the theme of um, children's experience of the war back home? Mm. Um, so a lot of our chapter on that was based on an MA thesis done by one of my students by her name Charlotte Bennett and so her MA thesis is in the Victoria Library but she's also published an article that I can direct you to and what and her main source was school newspapers so she went she used probably about 16 school newspapers equally between boys and girls schools and so she's written a thesis that looks at young New Zealanders and then teenagers Um, and her findings were very strongly about the the subsequent crisis of the influenza pandemic which of course came very hot on the heels for people at home of the war crisis and so she couldn't separate those so she's treated those as one kind of long crisis with two stages so that that has that's probably you know the the most detailed work about children that we have for New Zealand. Well, I can't let this go by without mentioning William Malone. Oh yes, good. Who at one yes. stage <laughs> says, "No more socks, please. I've got plenty." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested in the families, the family background from the, from the material. Is it a predominantly middle class group of people? You know, I'm thinking, uh, you know, Maori working class people, they're likely to not feature so strongly in the collections, I imagine. Was that the case? I wouldn't be so sure about that, actually, John. I Well, every soldier had an ID disc. And, I mean, that you know, so we can look at it two ways. One is, did they get a shaving kit when they went? Well, perhaps not everybody did. Did they all get army issue? Yes. So there's a kind of the democratising of stuff through army issue. 
and quite a lot of that personal stuff comes back. Um, and so in the Gallipoli Effects book, uh, I think it's the Gallipoli one, mm. there are heaps of Māori families who are listed in there and there's crucifixes. There's a whole lot of religious stuff, common prayer books, um, pocket-sized Bibles, photographs. You know, they're just labelled photographs, postcards. And then, and it is very, <coughs> coming at it from the object perspective, Kirsty will know more about this, but there's so much without provenance. And so it's very difficult to tell. So, yeah, I mean, the problem is that it's, we just, it's just not recorded, you know, mm. so... Um, but, but, you know, one of the sources I found really helpful f to find finding a Māori experience of the war was to look into autograph albums. Oh, yeah. yeah so yeah, we often yeah. find, um, you know, Māori soldiers uh, writing a, a, a short um, kind of ditty or kia ora. I'm just, <clears throat> I think my favourite one is kia ora, I'm just a Māori digger kind of thing. So, again, it's you look at an, al a, an autograph album, which is it's kind of low down in the food chain in terms of being a documentary you know primary source but in terms of the lives that are recorded in it they're they're incredibly rich yeah but i i did an analysis of the atl collection where i went through and every every diary and set of letters that had names i went through and pulled out their occupations off their um enlistment records and actually it's remarkably well spread the number of labourers and farmhands and bushmen in there is much more than the Australian collections, for example. So if we're thinking about, well, they kept papers, so there's probably <laughs> things out there. In, or in, were. Or were, yes, and are now in collections somewhere. Yeah, yeah. it's about the best as well I can do on class, I'm afraid, yeah, John. Classes, yeah. <laughs>